0: I'm a minister in training here at the church. Let me add my welcome onto David's. And this evening we are carrying on looking at uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you're joining us tonight for the first time, we're in chapter 4 tonight. But before we turn there, let me remind us what's been happening so far in the letter. Ephesians was written to the church in Ephesus and there in the middle of the city Ephesus was the great temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. And Artemis worship overshadowed everything in the city. And yet amongst this great city there's this new church, a small church, entirely made up of new believers and Paul writes to encourage them. Perhaps they're feeling small, insignificant, and he writes to encourage them, and does so by reminding them of who they are in Christ, by reminding them of what the church is. It's funny thing. We started this series way, way back in September, and back in September, Andy Robertson gave us the helpful analogy that as we look at Ephesians, the church is a bit like Doctor Who's TARDIS. That from the outside, the church can be uh, a bit bland, a bit plain, a bit ordinary. But as Paul does in a letter, when you open the doors to the TARDIS, wow, the cosmic realities behind the scenes are incredible. And what we've seen in the first three chapters in Ephesians is Paul bringing this out, laying out to us what it means to be the church. A group of people who are saved by grace, brought under the headship of Christ, reconciled to God. A people united to Christ. A people united to one another. A people who are a new humanity. And what we saw in chapter three was Paul saying that the church displays to the world the manifold wisdom of God. God. What does that mean? Well, it means that God is staking his reputation on the church. Because the church is the visible manifestation of the rule and reign of the risen, conquering Christ. And what that means is, is that therefore the way the church lives, the way people who are part of the church live, should be different to the rest of the world. That's what Paul then goes on to explain in chapters 4-6 to where we are. If you've got a church Bible, we're on page 1175. And have a look as we start, just remind ourselves of verse 1 of chapter 4, where Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy or to walk, to walk worthy of the calling you have received. That's the, the overarching theme of the second half of this letter. So let's turn to our part now in verse 17. And let me read from verse 17 of chapter 4 to verse 2 of chapter 5. And then pray asking God for his help. So chapter 4 from verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with continual lust for more. You, however, did not not come to know Christ that way Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by his deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully, truthfully to his neighbor For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words that you have spoken to us, written down here for us, And as we stand on the threshold of it this evening, may you incline our hearts to your word and not to anything else this world has to offer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word this evening. Unite our hearts in the reverent fear of you and satisfy our hearts in your steadfast love. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we move on to the next slide, Fraser. What's the big point of our passage this evening? Well, don't think like the old self. Think like the new self. And walk like the new self towards one another. That's our roadmap we're going on this evening. So let's look at verses 17 to 19. Have a look at verse 17. I don't think Paul really could have started in stronger language. So I tell you this. And insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now if we just take that verse on its own, what's the great danger for us? Well it's some sort of self-righteous superiority isn't it? There's no place for that in Ephesians, no place for that in the Christian life. So as we begin our section this evening... Let's think back to chapter 2 and what we heard. Why don't you keep one finger in chapter 4? Actually, church bibles are easy. There it is, the same page. Have a look at chapter 2. Let's remind ourselves what Paul here said. Let me read for us from verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, in which you used to walk God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Have a look down at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There's no place for self-righteous superiority here. We're all messed up people. That's what the start of chapter 2 says. All of us are messed up people. No one here is anything special. See, Ephesians 4 is not saying how to be accepted by God. We just read chapter 2. Chapter 2 says that we are accepted by God. Chapter 4 shows us that there is therefore a new way to live in light of that. And the new way we are to live is not the same way that non-Christians live. Turn back to chapter 4 and look again at verses 17 to 19. And the people Paul is describing here, they're not the worst in society. These are not necessarily or not just the people who make the front pages of the news. Paul here is describing everyone who doesn't know God. He's saying they think differently, so they act differently. Think for a moment of your friends and family who aren't Christians. For many of us, they're probably good people, moral people. But if you are a Christian, what makes them tick isn't the same as what makes you tick. The way that they think is not only different to the way you think, it's completely opposite to the way you think for verse 18 they are darkened in their understanding separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts and as we saw in chapter 2 if it was not for the grace of God working in us this would be the same for all of us here but perhaps you're here and you aren't a Christian verse 18 is a stark description isn't it? Is Paul justified in what he says here? Is this a fair description of the way the world is? Well, let's follow him in the text and see his reasoning and see if he see if he is justified. Have a look at verse 19. He says that because people have lost sensitivity to what God says, I think a more helpful translation is, and say the heart has become callous because they've rubbed and rubbed and rubbed away they've lost sensitivity to what God says people instead go for sensuality sexual promiscuity those drunken nights with friends and colleagues people filling their minds with no thought as to what they're watching on TV looking at on the internet they've been given over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity I do what I want When I want With whom I want And how dare you say otherwise Do all this with continual Lust for more Greed Insatiable appetites Why? Well because sin never satisfies A continual And greater, greater consumption Of pornography Living more and more and more Outwith our financial means A lust for more and more and more Now is Paul's diagnosis here true? I think if we open our eyes, we see it every day. We see it everywhere we look. Because if we're honest, we see parts of this in the mirror. See, this way of thinking, this way therefore of living, isn't harmless fun. It's not freedom. It's got no place in the Christian life. Let me illustrate this using uh, an an analogy from Richard Cokin's book, Ephesians, for you. If you want a book in Ephesians, get that book. So helpful. And in in his commentary, he writes this. He says, before we came to Christ, we were enslaved and captive to sin. We were hostages of Satan, awaiting our death sentence under God's law. It's as if we were imprisoned in a stinking cell. And even though we sometimes gazed through the bars, wondered what life was like outside, we just couldn't leave. We lived in the darkness and dirt of the cell, unaware of how filthy we had become. But on the cross, Jesus paid the ransom price to open the door of our cell. When he redeemed us, he brought us back with his precious blood. And so he has brought us out into the warm sunshine. And we stand in the warm sunshine, Blinking in amazement at how filthy we are. Blinking in amazement at how beautiful life in light can be. And so now in light we long to be clean like Jesus. But in our darker moments, perhaps after too much drink, perhaps bad company, perhaps exhaustion, self-pity, we crawl back into our old cell. And we go back to that life of sensuality, impurity, greed, greed. But because our hearts are different now, because not hardened, calloused, we find ourselves there utterly miserable. But the door of the cell has been made permanently open. Jesus' blood has freed us, paid to free us, and paid to keep us free. And so he helps us now. He's given us a spirit, his word. He enables us to pray to him. He's given us The church, fellow believers, who can help drag us out of the cell, back into the light. And one day when he returns, he will close that cell forever. But until that day, Paul says that we aren't to act like we used to. Even though when we are tempted to do them, we don't do them. But not because we're above anyone. You and I aren't above anyone Paul calls us not to do these, not because we are better than anyone, but because we should know better. We need to stop thinking like the old self. and said verse 20, start thinking like the new self. Have a look at verses 20 and 21 over the page of the church Bible. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Notice here the emphasis on the mind here. Didn't come to know Christ that way. You heard and were, and were taught that way. So we see in verses 20 24 a reminder of a complete change of state. That because you have come to Jesus and trust in him, you are now different. So you must take off what is old and put on what is new. Look at the process Paul describes here. Look at verse 22, where first you were taught to take off the old self. This means that because we now know something is wrong, we want to every effort to get rid of it. But these things are deceitful. It's not easy. They lie to us. We ought to get rid of them. Verse 23, this undressing prepares us to be made new in the attitudes of our minds. Notice this thinking language again. See, as we reject these things, God, by his spirit, through his word, works in us and creates in us new desires, greater desires. That means that as we, as we aim to put off being so critical of one another, we instead put on being thankful for who and what God has provided in verse 24, we then put on. We put on the new self. And this begins when we first trust in Jesus. It's as if when we trust in him, we are given his very royal robes. And as we learn more about what it looks like to live in these robes, we see more and more in our life the things which just don't go with it, which just don't match with it, which just don't fit anymore we've been given new clothes we don't put new clothes on over old clothes we take the old clothes off see we've been given these royal robes this new clothing because of the holiness of Christ and we put on all the things which are like him as we learn to live a life of holiness but how does that begin how do we start doing those things Well, this battle for holiness in our lives doesn't begin with accountability software. It doesn't begin with financial accountability. It doesn't begin with not saying those things in your head you really want to say out loud. The battle for holiness begins in the mind, the mind which has learned Christ. That means that when the desire to fit in comes, think of Jesus. When the desire to choose pornography comes, think of Jesus. When the desire to gossip comes, think of Jesus. When the desire to choose comfort for yourself over service of others, think of Jesus. Paul says, Don't think like your old self. That's gone. That's dead. Think like the new self. And therefore, walk like the new self towards one another. I've put up for us the pointers as how. Paul makes his arguments through and through, saying, put of this, put on that. But let's remember that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? Have you ever thought of that before? That as we meet together, as St. Peter's on a Sunday, we look around, that we display the manifold wisdom of God. Because the church is this visible manifestation of the rule and reign of the risen Christ. And to have a look down at these verses, have a look down from verse 25, and see how this amazing community is to live towards one another. In light of putting on Christ, what do their lives now look like? Think, how would you describe these things? What's the first word that comes to mind? Anticlimactic, perhaps? So I thought A bit mundane See it looks like being kind Being nice It's quite mundane things isn't it See the Christian life isn't a life of Epic events and and Superhero like powers It's a life of Glorious mundanity Let's look at these things here And notice just how many of them Are to do with speaking to one another as if Paul's moved from the mind to the mouth And first off he says Put off falsehood and put on truth What does Paul mean by that? Well it means obviously not lying Not even a white lie It means telling Not telling a half story But it also means not being deceptive Not being deceptive to those who perhaps Really needed your help Sorry no I can't come and help We're just too busy See, even if there is truth in that, many times, often, it's because we just don't want to. We don't want to spend time with people we are united to. We just want to do our thing. We don't want to be inconvenienced. Paul says, put that off. Stop being deceptive. That isn't who you are. Put on truth. St. Peter should be a place where we speak truth and love to one another. And that means sometimes saying things which are difficult. But we are united to one another. We aren't individuals. So we have to care for one another. Be honest with one another. Put off falsehood and put on truth. He also says put off selfish anger and put on righteous anger. In your anger, do not sin. It's striking, isn't it? That there's a time to be angry. Perhaps you you come to the monthly prayer meeting on, on a Wednesday and you hear about Christians who are being persecuted and you get angry. Rightly so. Or perhaps this morning after the service or this evening, someone has wronged you and it's totally uncalled for, totally unfair, and you feel angry about it. Paul says, Be angry, but don't sin. Be angry, but don't let your anger go on forever. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, it's funny, or perhaps this is just me. We all think that our anger is righteous anger. We all think that our anger is justified. See, even if it is, don't let it fester. Don't let it fester in your mind. Don't let it turn into hatred. Perhaps you've left here before angry and you you drive home and in your head you're just playing over and over and over again what was said, what was done and thinking, I wish I'd said this I wish I'd done that and it's funny, you always win the argument in your head, don't you? And as you play that argument over the other person always seems more and more and more wrong and so your dislike for them grows more and more and more and what does that produce? We'll have a look at verse 27. It gives the devil a foothold, an opportunity to come into the church. See, as we play the argument over and over in our heads, and as our dislike for that person grows more and more and more, it's if the devil's waiting to pounce, and we give giving that opportunity, that foothold into the church. See, don't let the devil in. Don't let the devil in and destroy and disrupt the unity and love that God has died for. That he wants to show to the world through his church. It may seem like a small thing for us to let our, our anger smolder away. But it's got huge consequences. Put off selfish anger and put on righteous anger. Put off stealing and put on honest work. I look out and I can't see anyone dressed up as burglar Bill. No one with swag written on the bag or anything perhaps we can skip over this one there's a bit more to it than that it's quite easy to do a day's paid work isn't it but it's quite easy to do a day's paid work and spend a lot of the time on our phones on social media or just blethering away or perhaps claiming benefits when really we don't need them when instead we should be working So that's all stealing. See, when we dig into this, it isn't so much the emphasis of, are you a thief? But actually, are you selfish? See, look at the emphasis at the end of verse 28, that he may have something to share with those in need. See, if we are hoarding our money, hoarding our possessions for our own comfort, that's just as bad as a thief. Because both only want for themselves. See, the church, as Paul describes it in the letter, this new humanity of Jesus is being marked by radical generosity. We ought to give people our time, our money, our lives. And as people look at the church, hopefully they see this radical community, and people who give to one another, give to one another as God has so freely given to us, put off stealing, put on honest work, put off corrupting talk and put on encouraging talk have a look at verse 29 as you read this verse therefore there should be a stark difference between the conversations that we have here and the conversations we hear elsewhere the conversations we see online Paul's saying put off the vulgar jokes put off the swearing put off bringing people down put off gossiping about them But don't just take off words that destroy, put on words that build one another up. See, as we speak to people, as we encourage them, it benefits them, but also those around them as well. See, anyone who's had someone come up to them and say something just to encourage them, or perhaps received an email someone sent just to encourage them, they don't quickly forget it. What's the Holy Spirit got to do with this, though, in verse 30? See, it's striking this morning, I thought, listening to David. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. Same thing again tonight in verse 30. See, what, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, for a start, it's not an it. It's not an it, it's, it's a he. And he's not some sort of spiritual glue. He's not like the force in Star Wars. He's a person. And when we act, when we speak in a way that brings disunity, it grieves him. See, what's been the Holy Spirit's work in Ephesians? Uniting us to Christ, uniting us to one another. So when we do things which deliberately try to tear that apart, it grieves him. It seeks to ruin the work which he is doing. See, when we speak wrongly towards one another, when we speak wrongly about one another, it brings blows to that unifying work He is doing in us. Simon, speak to the person tonight who you aren't getting on with. If not here, perhaps before your cheese on toast or if you're having Sunday evenings, give them a ring. Put off corrupting talk and put on encouraging talk. Finally, put off bitterness and put on kindness. Have a look from verse 31 of chapter 4 down to verse 2 of chapter 5. I think Paul is summing up everything he's been saying here in these verses. Now as we look at verse 31, we might read that and think, Ah, oh, that doesn't re really describe me if I'm honest then we look at verse 32 and we go oh wait that also doesn't re really describe me if I'm honest see the reason why I think is because for many of us we're probably tempted to neither one of these things but simply indifference perhaps for many of us we just don't really care for one another we serve because we think we have to Perhaps we come just to listen to God's words. Perhaps we only come to service when it's convenient for us or when we're on duty. See, these are real dangerous for us, aren't they? We must be putting on kindness, putting on compassion towards one another. Kindness is a strange thing. I think in our culture it's seen as weak to be kind. It's not weak to be kind. It's a very hard thing to be kind at times. Just look at verse 32 and imagine what this community which looked like this would do when people are genuinely kind to one another, genuinely compassionate towards one another, genuinely forgiving of one another. See, holding a grudge, that's an easy thing to do. Forgiving someone, that is a hard thing to do. Forgiving someone is hard because it means dying to yourself. Yet Paul says this is what we are to do. And how are we we enabled to do this? Because Christ died for us. He died for us that our sins may be forgiven. See, remembering what Christ has done for us is the only way that we can possibly forgive one one another. Because as we remember what he has done for us, as we engage our minds, we therefore act and forgive one another. I wish we had time to to look at uh, a video. When you go home, Go onto YouTube and search um, Charleston shooting forgiveness. Think back to when there was that shooting in the church in Charleston, South Carolina a few years ago. And there's this remarkable scene um, in a courtroom when the killer is there on the screen. And he uh, was welcomed by this church, he was loved by this church, and he slaughtered a number of people in that church. And here are parents... Whose children have died, husbands, wives, whose spouses have died. And yet, by the grace of God, they're able to forgive this man for what he has done. It's remarkable, isn't it? What we are able to do when we remember the gospel. See, what we've seen in this list here, we see the liar begins to speak truth. The angry becomes peaceful. The thief becomes a giver. The corrupt becomes an encourager. The bitter becomes kind. Glorious things, isn't it? But Paul doesn't end with saying, go and do likewise. He doesn't just say, be moral, but rather he says, be motivated by Jesus. He says, love as generously and patiently as God our Father loves his children. Forgive others as Christ forgave you and lay down your life for one another as Christ laid down his life for you. See, just think about what we've seen here this evening. I go into my social media feeds, Facebook pages and everyone wants to change. Hashtag new beginnings, hashtag gym sessions, all this sort of stuff. Everyone wants to change and yet, as you've seen here, Only in Christ is true transformation possible. I think in our culture, everybody wants to belong. We've seen here that only in the church do we see this selfless love towards one another because we are in Christ. I think if the mass social media of our time tells us one thing, it's that everybody wants to be accepted. We have an offer here, true acceptance from God. When we trust in Jesus, he will always accept us no matter how many times you mess up. See, if you're here and you aren't a Christian, this is all available for you because Christ loved you, gave himself up for you as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, taking the punishment that you deserve, that I deserve. But if you're here and you are a Christian, keep walking, keep going. But as you walk, don't think like the old self. Think like the new self. And walk like the new self towards one another. Let me pray. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the love that you have shown us, that you gave yourself up for us. That because we are now united to you, you call us to walk a different way. Help us to walk in light of who we are in you. To walk life worthy of the calling that we have received. Help us to take off all that is not like you in our lives. Help us to put on all that is like you and to walk in this way towards one another. And as we grow in this, help us be patient with one another. And so may we be a community where people are able to get a glimpse of you, our God who gives so freely, our God who is gracious compassionate, the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord Jesus, we ask all these things for your glory and for our joy in you. Amen.